Our Bible reading this morning will be out of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a corollary passage to the Acts 3 that we are studying this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. We're going to proceed through chapter 2, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13 is where we're going to start. We're going to end at chapter 2, verse 12. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 12. God's Word declares, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each man's, each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently and with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower fails away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's go, Lord. I haven't lost my place in my Bible, though. I invite you to turn to yours in the book of Acts, chapter 3, as we continue our study through this book. We are in the midst of Peter's second sermon. We're going to finish that up this morning. As we uh, have seen in his first message there in Acts, chapter 2, and now here in Acts, chapter 3, His focus has been on responding to the questions of his audience. That as they saw the mighty working of God's power, in Acts chapter 2, that was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and and the gift of languages that was present there that caught everyone's attention. Here in Acts chapter 3 is the healing of the man at the beautiful gate who had been there lame all of his life. In response to the 
questions that these supernatural events brought forward in people's minds. Remember, the events themselves did not lead anyone to decide to trust in Jesus. It simply brought out the question, what does it mean? What's going on here? And it wasn't until Peter and the others stood up to preach that there was understanding of what is God doing in our midst. Uh, When Peter stands up and says, you're asking a question, what does this all mean? And it's not what maybe you're thinking. In Acts chapter 2, they had no understanding of it, even though uh, Peter very quickly directs them to some Old Testament uh, information. In Acts chapter 3, we find that they are very quickly moving towards glorifying Peter and John instead of glorifying Jesus Christ, the name by which this man was healed. And Peter very quickly wants to dismiss all those things. No, these people aren't drunk. This isn't drunkenness that you're seeing. Uh, it's too early for that, for one thing. And this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we are talk, told about in the Old Testament. And here, Peter has made it very clear that no, this is not by our power, by our uh, ability to manipulate God anyway. This is simply the working of the powerful name of Jesus Christ. So both of these sermons are coming about in a similar way, very impromptu, if you would. Uh, There was no call for the meeting. There was uh, no uh, certain time that it started, and it wasn't going to last till a certain hour. Uh, and by the way, I know these sermons seem really short, but remember what we taught you, that uh, with many other words they spoke. We only have really the, the force of the message, not really everything that was shared in that context. But here we are in the midst of Peter's sermon now in response to the healing of the man, the lame man outside the beautiful gate. The whole movement went into the temple because he was leaping and praising God. And we need to probably start by rereading the sermon just to reacquaint ourselves with it as we are going to be jumping in in the midst of it. We ended in the very middle of a verse because I wanted to and it needed to be done because you guys won't sit for two-hour sermons. So I broke it off in chapter verse 19. We're going to pick up in the middle of that verse, but first we're going to read the the entire sermon uh, here in Acts chapter 3. And that... uh, takes us back to verse 12. And again, God's word declares, So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer... He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother and him. You shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets... And of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Let's go, Lord, in prayer for we begin our message this morning. Lord God, we do thank you 
for your word before us, your spirit within us, your people around us. And we pray that this time in your word might be profitable. That you might be at work in our lives. And we know that that profit can take many different forms, whether it be through conviction and challenge, whether it be through correction, instruction, whether it be through encouragement, lifting us up, strengthening us in your word. Lord, it is certain that one man's words can't accomplish all this simultaneously. But it is a small thing for your spirit. So Lord, we commit ourselves this hour to you and pray for your spirit's unction that what is said might be in accordance with your word, that it might be guarded from error and opinion, that it might take root in our lives, that it might transform us more into your Son, Jesus Christ, this week than last. We pray that your power might be at work in us. Whether it is to bring us to the gospel, or bring us to live in accordance with the gospel we claim. All to your glory, honor, and praise. And it's in that name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we left off in the middle of verse 19. Because our focus has been upon the first facet of the gospel. And it's a facet that we have lost, and I have hammered this and hammered this, so you're probably getting really tired of hearing it, of the idea of sin. And that we have lost touch with that in our society and it has been to the detriment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we go out there and confront men, they don't believe they are sinners. They don't believe they are worthy of judgment. They don't even know that there is such a thing as sin anymore. And the church, again, has been complicit in that. We have actually fed that. We have kind of dropped the terminology. We have, uh, in some denominations and in some faiths, have dropped the whole idea of eternal judgment. Uh, of there being a lake of fire, a place of the wrath of God. Uh, we have just diminished that to such a degree that uh, it has dropped from public hearing. And so in some ways we're responsible for that. In addition to all the other forces of this world and of Satan himself who would like men not to turn from their sin to Christ. And so Peter sermon we have focused in on has has again just hammered home you killed jesus christ you killed the messiah the just one the holy one you murdered him who did you no wrong who committed no error no sin certainly nothing worthy of death he is the holy one the just one everything in his ministry pointed to that and you rejected him you did this and again and again, Peter is going to keep putting this on to the leadership of Israel, onto the people of Israel, the mob who cried out, crucify him. And he wants to hammer home that it was their act of sin and of rebellion, of rejection, that led to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it was the powerful working of God that led to his resurrection. And so we left off, as we saw in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, the command to repent. That in repentance, that turning from sin to Christ, that we would say was believe, uh, Peter's preferred term is repent, that of uh, John the Baptist, of Jesus Christ, preaching repentance. It says that your sins may be blotted out. That that first step is the necessity of removing sin. And again... If people are unwilling to acknowledge that there is sin to be removed, we are dead stop before we ever really get going with the gospel. And so we are called to take people back, as the Bible does, take us back to the law, that we might help them recognize what sin is. And there's no mistake that our society wants to expunge from its public record uh, God's concept of law. Because it wants to expunge the idea of sin. Because it doesn't like the idea of judgment. And so we take people back to the law and we walk them through and talk about sin, about disobeying parents, 
about lying, about using God's name in vain and blasphemous ways, of hating, making us guilty of murder, Jesus says, and of coveting. Oh boy, do we ever covet. Isn't that what the TV and internet's all about? Covet. Look what I have. Now you want it too. Adultery. All of those things, we we begin to draw those out as not something that you're going to blame your parents for. They're something that you are personally responsible for. And it's time we stop calling sin a disease. It is time we stop calling sin uh, part of nurture instead of our nature. But that we recognize we have personal responsibility for sin. It must be removed from us. And this is the first part of salvation. Is the blotting out of our sins. And this is the first offer of God. And so I've called you not to start the gospel with people with this wonderful carrot of eternity in heaven. Because what it produces in people is that I will add Jesus to make sure I got that future base covered. In my belief system, I'll just add, well, I believe in Jesus. And there are no tears, no weeping, no, no brokenheartedness over sin that has offended a righteous God. When that occurs, we do not have a real conversion going on there. When it is simply we're going to add Jesus so I can secure my place in heaven, because I sure don't want to go to hell. Well, that really isn't the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel isn't to secure heaven. We're going to get there today. The beginning of the gospel is to blot out sins. This is what we must necessarily preach. I know it's offensive to people, and by the way, it's always been. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, and Peter's going to basically say the exact same things, um, that group isn't going to respond by faith repenting. They're going to respond by rejecting and hating, but they're Hands are tied because of the crowd for the time. Doesn't keep them from beating up these guys. But their hands are a little bit tied for the time being. So it was offensive back then as well. And now we run the gamut where the church is even struggling to identify sin as sin. And I've hammered that home and hammered that home because it is the first step. And we failed so miserably there that the gospel is of little effect in our community. We come to the next step, the next offer of God. So the first offer of God, blot your sins away. And if that was all there was, I would be excited. If that was all God offered, that would be exciting, to blot my sins away. To separate me from my sin But that's not really enough, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, and it's not really sufficient for considering all that Christ suffered for us. God's grace is greater than that. His love is more profound. His measure, uh, limitless. And so we have to go on. We come to the second aspect of the offer of God. First offer, to get rid of your sins. To do that, You need to repent of your sins. In this conversion process that we use a blanket word called believe over, um, there are these elements within this thing we call believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those elements is to repent. repent. That means that we identify the way I'm going is sinful. I need to turn from it to Christ. There's a second offer here now. And Peter says, now that he's talking to a mixed multitude, because this isn't just all the lost people, his first sermon didn't get to this level because everyone present needed to hear the need to have repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But now he's got a mixed group because they're there. Some people have been there from the Acts 2 event from Pentecost. They have accepted Christ their Savior. They have been following the teaching of of Peter, James, John, the the Twelve. 
And now Peter's going to take them a step further. There is more to the offer of God than just the removal of sin. That's necessary and cannot be diminished. It is our starting point. And we've kind of flipped the whole thing upside down, and our starting point now is where Peter ends, and our ending point is where Peter starts. And then we wonder why the gospel doesn't take root in people's hearts the way it should. Why they are so uh, willing to abandon it at the first trial or tribulation. The second offer in verse 19 says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now that our sins are blotted out, now what? And Christ offers this. This is what Peter describes as the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. That the Lord is going to bring forth something new to us, something fresh, something exciting. It's going to issue forth from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Peter is going to pick up in 1 Peter that we read earlier this morning on several imagery, several images of this facet of our faith, of our gospel. That once our sins are expunged, are removed, we are in a condition ready to receive from the Lord something called refreshing in this text. Our Lord used the word born again. Peter uses it again in 1 Peter uh, that we read. He also talked about us moving from darkness to light. This whole idea of, of now we who were once in this despair of sin are now brought into this light of the righteousness of God. Where God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It is a theme picked up also by Paul, when he talks about being a new creation. Old things pass away, all things have become new. This refreshment that comes from the throne of God, from the very presence of God, brings about this uh, work of God in us. That by faith in Jesus Christ, not only are our sins removed, but we are given something new, something we have not previously experienced ever. And this newness, this light, this righteousness, this holiness, this, this new birth, this new, this, uh, that, that Peter again calls us babes, like newborn babes, designed the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. This movement from a place of despair and desolation into this wonderful condition of communion with God is this times of refreshing from the throne of God, the throne of our Lord, that from his very presence, he offers us not in the future, but today, this newness. And we use that imagery from darkness to light. We're familiar with that. I want to use one that we're familiar with out here in the desert that we essentially are offered an oasis. And why do I want to use that? Because of this term, the word refreshing. That we walk out of a desert that's dry, (coughs) somewhat lifeless. Our deserts aren't quite so lifeless as others. That's hard. It works against us every hour we are out in it with the sun beating on us and with the life just being sucked out of us by the heat, by the sand, by all that is around us, that half the plants we encounter just do us greater injury and don't really help because of thorns and such and poisons that are on them. That's where the lost are living, if you want to call it that. That's where they are. They're in that place of thirst, of hunger, of desolation, of despair, of despondence. And if there's ever any sight 
of something that looks like water and life, it is a mirage to them. They have created it in their own minds. Because the reality is that it isn't available to any of them anywhere. This desert goes on and on and on. But Christ offers something wondrous in the midst of all that. That while we are surrounded by desert, we can be an oasis. We can be a place where there's life, where there's water from the river of life that we can partake in, that we can be refreshed in, that we can glory in, that we can have that sweet communion with God within in our existence now. This Peter wants to add to this offer, not only that you repent so that your sins can be expunged, that is necessary, important, critical. Don't ever avoid it. Don't try to jump over it. Don't get around it. It must be present in your gospel message. But there is a further development to our salvation, and that is this this newness that we know that we receive from God, His Holy Spirit, that transforms our minds. That we're able now to conduct a relationship with God that we did not have the capacity to do in our sin. And that we are these new creations in Christ that we can now engage Him. And and just to let you share how some of the other authors, I talked about Paul as a new creation in John. His writing is, oh, you are the children of God. You are the adopted ones. He's your father. And first John goes extensively into developing children. Theme. That we are now in this intimate relationship with the Almighty One, with the Holy One. And we are refreshed in that. Instead of walking in despair, we have hope. Instead of walking in turmoil, we have peace. Instead of having pointlessness to every day's activity, we have purpose. This is the times of refreshing that God offers you. That from this point on, not that you will have no tribulation, that you'll have no problems, that is nowhere in Scripture, and those that take up that theme to teach it are liars. Period. They do not know the Scriptures, they are misrepresenting our faith, and they have done material damage to the Gospel. Some come to Christ even repenting of their sins, but they listen to those people and they abandon Christ as soon as the sun comes up and scorches their soil a little bit. Jesus warned us about that, right? Parable of soils, seeds. That error, that false teaching leads to such activity. That we believe that this times of refreshing means that I'm just going to have comfort from here on out. What nonsense. No, this time refreshing is a spiritual refreshing from the Lord that I can confront every trial and tribulation with joy that is profound. There is a sense of calm that that overrides all the activity and, and, and forces that are going on around me and opposed to Christ but I have it right with God and therefore I can be at peace and I can sit in the midst of godless men who are cursing and gnashing with their teeth and wanting to to destroy me and I can endure. And I can even walk out bloodied and bruised and be full of joy that I was counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. That's what times of refreshing are like. That we have an inner fortitude in the new creation of God in us, Holy Spirit, who is 100% reliable, dependable, strengthening us. We are refreshed. We have not only the capacity to endure now, we have a capacity to have a right relationship with God and to have that intimacy with Him. We have the capacity to do right. And there should be nothing more refreshing than Christians who want to do right. And I want to share with you that we are dropping the ball on this one too. Frankly. We can blame the world, but on this manner, 
I think it all falls right on the shoulders of the church. A carnal church. That doesn't see that the refreshing new creation of God is that we might walk in righteousness. Turn with me back to 1 Peter. I want you to notice, in the midst of all his imagery of darkness to light and as newborn babes and, and this born-againness, that in 1 Peter, Peter uh, picks up on the idea of what this refreshing is really all about. In verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that here, hopefully, in about five minutes. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Jump to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure miracle of the word that you may grow thereby. Do you get the picture? That the time of refreshing is a time of walking in righteousness. And I have got to tell you that one of the most exciting things for me to encounter are Christians who really live it. Not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. They have the walking around faith in Jesus Christ, not just the sitting in the pew faith in Jesus Christ. And that is refreshing to me. It is refreshing to me to see that and to realize that there is a reality that leaves this building and takes Christ out there. And it's rare. And it's becoming more rare all the time. And the fact is, when the world can pick up and say, here's this leader who was caught in adultery, and here's this spiritual Christian who was caught in homosexuality, and here's this one who's running off with um, absconding with funds, and, and they can point to all these black marks among the believers when they look at the divorce rate of Christians as being no different than that of non-believers, of, of every act of, of, of sexual pervasive, pervasive, uh, perversion being prevalent in the church, when they can point at that, we have an issue. We have failed to present the gospel as a time of refreshing that we can be righteous. This is part of the times of refreshing, of being the new creation, of being these new children in God who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When that difference is seen, oh, what a time refreshment for the believers and for the world. I want to share that with you. The world desperately is looking for the real deal. Desperately doing so. Do you notice in 1 Peter 2 that word hypocrisy of pretenders? of actors and actresses out there claiming a role but failing really to be what they claim. And the world picks up on this very quickly. Let me share with you. The world picks up on it about as fast as your children pick up on it in your home of hypocritical living. They pick up on it really quick, don't they? We say this thing and on the way home, we're um, basically destroying everything that we just stood for in church and sang about. We've destroyed before we even got home in the car. The world desperately needs to be refreshed by Christians who are walking a spiritual walk. Who are living it out. Who are genuinely the new creation, who are light in darkness, who are salt in the blandness of this world. But instead we try to excuse ourselves. We try to find ways to avoid righteousness and to redefine it. I remember some time ago there was, I have to do this because it's Facebook because it's fun. I'm down to 38 friends. i got to stop talking on Facebook because I'm going to run out of all of them altogether. Um, this gal was putting these pictures on, and she was claiming to be this spiritual person. You get on there, and she got there through my book, and, 
and uh, she was my friend, and she was had all these spiritual posts and all these wonderful pictures of sunsets and nature and and glory to God and quoting scripture. Um, and but then she updated her. She's also into physical fitness and all this, and she came to this conclusion that she has this wonderful body, and it's just going to help worship God if she just displays it. And so she's just going to do that. And she started putting these pictures on, and so I very quickly... um, In that case, you should not wear any clothes. Correct? I mean, if you follow her thinking that God's given me this beautiful body, and therefore it can't be a sin to show it off, because I've worked so hard at this, I've dieted, I've exercised, and so it, it can't be sin to show it off. And she's created all of this rationale for her to basically be immodest and look like the world. If you've got it, flaunt it. And I mistakenly thought I should interject something there about modesty. And if that's the case and your reasoning is sound, then you should wear no clothes at all. Because God's designed your whole body, not just certain parts of it. Of course, I went on to talk about those of us that are flabby, saggy, and ugly should just wear burkas, but she didn't like that part either. But um, <laughs> we've excused sin. We've created this rationale and we spiritualized it so that we end up rationalizing sin, not to the world, but to us. And when the world looks at us, they don't see the rationale that you have, they just see the sin. They see the immodesty, and they know immodesty when they see it. They do. It doesn't take me long to get a young man to acknowledge what what level of immodesty is immodest. And so as long as the church is actively out there trying to justify sin instead of realizing we are new creations created in Christ to be holy as God is holy, that part of the refreshment is that now I am able to be righteous and to do righteously. Until we have laid hold on that, we have lost the appeal to the world of this facet of the gospel That God wants to fundamentally transform you. Not only does he want to get rid of the sin, that baggage. Yes, we're all tired of carrying the bundle that Christian had to carry through the bogs of life and come to the cross and God says, we'll get rid of that that burden and we'll throw it off. But that's not enough for God. He wants to transform us into the image of his son that we be like him. Little Christ, this is what is represented by Peter's phrase, times of refreshing, from the presence of the Lord on me. These are these times. Well, there's one other offer. I probably should just take the whole time on this, but (coughs) there's another facet. That's the second facet. First facet, sin. We need to recognize sin before we can get, have a desire to get rid of it. And God offers to blot it out. And then to refresh us, to make us new, to transform us, to rebirth us. That we can be like Christ. And this should be an appeal. And the problem in our society is for the church, I don't think that's even appeal to Christians anymore. I don't think most of us want to be like Christ. When I encounter them and they really just want to be who they want to be and, and, and I made a contention with the teens. I said there's two statements. You tell me what the problem is between these two statements. I want God to be pleased with everything I do or I want to do everything that pleases God. Most Christians believe the first statement. Lord, I want you to be pleased with everything I do. 
In other words, put your stamp of approval on what I choose to do. I'll find the verse to back it up. And if I can't, I'll use the verse, judge not, lest you be judged. Instead of the verse that says, I want to do that which pleases God. This is the refreshment that our world desperately needs to see. That Christians in our churches desperately need to desire after. But it has become so rare and has been spoken so badly of for a generation now, at least, that the church itself doesn't recognize a new creation, doesn't recognize what rebirth looks like and what it accomplishes on us, let alone desiring after it. But it is precious. And it is, brethren, necessary. And without it, verse 20 becomes frightening. There is an order to this. We all want verse 20. It says that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The third offer of God, finally, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for the Christian? It means that we participate in the resurrection with Christ, that we are now in the presence of Christ for all time, that we... Uh, that, that everything's restored. That there's a time of restoration that we go back to the way it was only better. Even better than the Garden of Eden. When God restores something, He restores it better than the original. Um, I love Naaman. You remember the, the former leper? You know, he came out of that River Jordan. And what was his skin like? Was it like a 40-year-old man's? Nope. Like a baby's skin. I just wonder if all those guys all the way home wanted to just touch him. You know, like we all want to touch Eleanor and Elizabeth and all those kids. When God restores something, it's better than the original. And this God said, we all look forward to that restoration. We want to sing about heaven. We want to get there. We want to get our new bodies. We want to be in the presence of God. We want to drink from the river of life. We want to eat from the trees of life. We want to be there. And certainly that is a valid offer that God puts out there as aspect of his salvation. This is the gospel that Jesus will one day come back and restore all things. Wow. Can't wait. But I also realize that as much as we talk about it, most believers in our churches aren't ready for it. Because we haven't laid hold of statements of Christ that says in that day of restoration there's going to be a lot of tears. There are going to be a lot of people rejected who thought they were right with God. Even in the service of God. Look, we taught in your name, we perform miracles in your name, we cast out demons in your name, and Jesus' response is, depart from me, I never knew you. As much as we tout wanting to be in heaven, we've lost track of the fact that the restoration of all things start with a couple of judgment seats. The great white throne, judgment seat of Christ, they start off with judgments. The prophets didn't lose track of that. Peter doesn't lose track of it here either. So there's some background information I want to get to our ultimate completion of our salvation. First of all, just as God sent Jesus as a baby, verse 20 tells us that the Father, He, may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before. Rightly does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 
No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, only the Father. Why? Because Jesus isn't up there deciding when he's going to come. The Father is. It says the Father will send him. Verse 21 tells us that heaven has received him. Heaven must receive. So heaven's whole, you know, Christ is in heaven. He's doing his work, interceding for us. He is there as our mediator, um, not only in, in terms of prayer, but, but, but positionally as the one who, who justifies, sanctifies, glorifies us. Uh, he is there in that role. He is in heaven and he will stay in heaven until God sends him back at the times of restoration of all things. God prophesied it. It will occur. He is the ultimate prophet that we're going to talk about next week. Uh, we're not going to get to it tonight. But we're going to see this development that Christ waits upon the Father. The Father will send Christ back for the restoration of all things. And when he does so, what we find is that there are some on earth who will have listened to his teaching. And there are those who have not. And that's described here as they will be utterly destroyed from among the people if they do not hear that one Jesus. Utterly destroyed. And so for Israel, the main recipients of this message, they're being confronted with some kingdom language that they are very familiar with. If you remember, the disciples themselves were kind of caught up in the kingdom stuff during the Gospels. Are you now going to start the kingdom? Is it now we're going to get rid of the Romans? Is it now? Is it now? How about now? Okay, when? (laughs) And Christ says, the kingdom of God is going to be a lot bigger than just Israel. It's going to be all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Peter lays a germ here in the minds of believers. Luke wants to record it for us that Peter is going to have to be matured in by God through some visions and and inner dealings with Cornelius. But the germ theologically is there. And we find that God wants the gospel to go to all people. That is certainly one of the necessary elements that that Jesus waits for the Father on. We're also told by the Father in um, Revelation that he is waiting for the last of those who will be slain for the testimony of Jesus Christ to be slain. When your number is complete, then I will send. Wait for your that number to be complete. So we have some conditions, and there's that that's one in Revelation. There's one uh, way early here, and so we have lots of other conditions in between there. The Father will see that all those conditions are met, and at the right time, just as at just the right time Christ came as a baby, at just the right time Christ will come to restore all things. Just as surely as he came then, at the right time of the Father is set, so surely he will come again. And we have missed this powerful aspect of the gospel, and we've lost credibility to the world because of how we have abused those verses. God tells us what to look for and tells us to wait. And in our waiting, to do it faithfully, serving Him. You go out there now and try to engage the world about the second coming of Christ and it's a different flavor than just 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It's a totally different concept. Now, they have total incredulity about it. You know why they don't believe us? Because of people that keep saying he's coming back on this date and he doesn't. People come come back on this date and he doesn't. And they've come to the point that it's now a laughable thing. And here is a precious offer of God that Jesus will come again and restore all things and will bring you into his very kingdom. This is wonderful. But the world laughs at it now because we have abused 
it to our own interests. So Peter says, just as surely as Jesus went up, he's coming back. I heard, you know, I think he was told that back there in Acts chapter 1, wasn't it? And they say, uh, why are you standing here gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus taken up to you will go, so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. That's exciting. That's thrilling. It's part of our gospel message. That is, that things will not always be the way they are. The world just won't keep going on and on and on and on and on and on. And on. There will come an end. Jesus is coming back. I remember in my youth that that was a very powerful message that we were given, is that you don't know when. You don't know you have your deathbed ahead of you to wait to accept Christ. Because Christ could come back now. Then what? You can't be converted in that period of time of instantaneous calling forth by the trumpet of his people You are then destined for judgment, for wrath. So decide now. And as a 10-year-old, that kind of hit me between the eyes. I better decide now. To take care of my sin. To have times of refreshing, so that when the times of restoration come, I'll be ready. That's our hope. And this three-pronged offer of Peter to the people there in the Temple Mount that God's willing to remove the baggage, the burden of your sin. He's willing to transform you into the wonder of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His righteousness, His new creation, His Spirit, and then offer you full restoration at the day appointed by the Father. But that offer of heaven, that offer of restoration, didn't come first in Peter's message. It didn't even really raise its head at all in the first sermon. Because he's dealing with a lost crowd. It raises its head here. He's in a mixed multitude of, of uh, those that were just still trying to figure it all out. Those who had trusted in Christ, brand new believers, and these over here who hated it. So he gives forward this fullness of the offer of God from the beginning aspects of it, which is the removal of sin through the new creation aspect, which is necessary to have an intimacy with God, into the fullness of it and its full restoration at Christ's coming. This is the complete package that God is offering. And it is necessary that we offer that package to men. But I want to warn you that it is time that we stop turning our back on the idea of sin, on our back on the idea that there is expectation of righteousness in His people, and just offer the carrot of of heaven to people. The fact is, you offer that cookie, they'll grab the cookie. But if you say you have to work three hours to get the cookie first, well, I don't know if I want the cookie that bad. And brethren, the Christian life is work. It is. It's refreshing. It's new. It's it's life. It's not death. It's despair. You're in an oasis. You've got shade. You've got provisions. Everything's there for you, but it's work. See, we offer the cookie without showing this step. And we offer this new creation sometimes without talking about you're a dirty, rotten sinner that deserves the wrath of God. we've turned it all upside down. And the result is expected. I'm not surprised by the results that the world laughs at the offer of salvation. That they just sneer at it. They just... It's no biggie. They don't have any sin in their mind. 
We don't need to be made into a new person. And really, is heaven all that great a place anyway? Because I heard the party is in hell. Right? We have a responsibility to bring these things into our life so they can see them clearly as something worthwhile, something wonderful that they desperately want, that they can't get any other way than through this message. And we don't start off talking. uh, Conversations about heaven are powerful, and, and they should be part of your gospel presentation But if they start there, you need to very quickly get it to, well, what's going to keep you out of heaven, brother? Not brother, friend. (laughs) Oh, that we would take our understanding of heaven and quickly convert it to the fact that it's a pure place and you're not. Instead of just saying, don't you want to go to heaven? Oh, then just pray this prayer. You've become pretty much like a Muslim. All you have to do is say five times in a row, there's no God but Allah, Muhammad is a prophet. Say that five times consecutively, and bam, you're a Muslim. So if you're worried about that, let's cover that base right now. Just go ahead. I'm not worried about that. The Christian walk is more than just say a sinner's prayer so you can get to heaven. It's about having your sins blotted out Walking in a new existence. Even in the turmoil of this world. And then looking forward to the restoration of all things. This is the offer of God. And it's wonderful. It's worth singing about. But brethren, it's also worth living for. And it's even worth dying for. It's worth suffering for. It's worth getting beat up for. It's worth getting spit on for. It's worth losing your job for. It's worth it. It's a wonderful offer. The world diminishes it because the church has diminished it. Let us reestablish this as our priority. I want more than just my sins expunged. I want to be this new creature that God has transformed me into, was offered to do so anyway, that I may then be qualified to participate in this restoration of all things in heaven, in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. This is our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word before us. What a wonderful salvation you have made for us. Lord, we have to ask for your forgiveness because we've tarnished it. We've tarnished your offer. The world because of that tarnishment that we've put on it has just now doesn't always see it as something they need to consider, pursue or even desire after. Lord, forgive us of this. For we know the offer is wondrous, necessary. And that we are very undeserving of it. Lord, help us to live our lives and to communicate your gospel to this world in these terms terms that they're not familiar with anymore because we have allowed these terms to be lost. Because we didn't keep them on the front of our lips. So Lord, we pray that you might find us revisiting them. As we do so, that we might see some turn from their sin repent, turn to your Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be made new creations, newborn babes, light out of darkness. We 
they may walk by faith in your spirit till you come and restore. Lord, we want to do this not in our own strength, nor by our own wisdom. So we pray your Spirit's help. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.